we're going to read from John's Gospel, um, which is in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we're going to read uh, from chapter 1, verses 14 to 18. This is the end of what's known as the prologue of John's Gospel. And um, I want to speak to you this morning about the glory and grace of God. So we'll pick up where we left off last week. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. John testifies concerning him. He cries out saying, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. From the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. I want to start at the end of that passage this morning and then work backwards. So verse 18 says this. It says, no one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. Often you hear people saying things like, I like to think of God as... And then they fill in the blank of that statement. I've heard people say this so many times. They fill in the blank of that statement, I like to think of God as, with their kind of design your own deity. I like to think of God as. So if we go back to our conversation between Amanda Holden and Alan Carr from last week, as they looked at the Italian sunset and decided there must be something more, there must be something behind this, something greater. Amanda Holden says, in essence, my God, I like to think of God as, my God is not a big, great, white-bearded God in the sky that judges us. In fact, I am my own God. I believe in myself. And sometimes when people consider God and the Bible, and Christianity, sometimes they say something along the lines, I like Jesus in the New Testament. He's kind, and he's nice, and he's gentle, and he's meek. But the God of the Old Testament, he's harsh and judgmental and mean. I like to think of God as... But what is God really like? And can we really know him? The study of God is called theology. It comes from two different words, theos, God, and logos, which we were talking about last week, word. Words about God, theology. Do you remember from last week, we talked about the word, the logos, Theology, then, means theos and logos, words about God. We considered last week 
that the logos of the universe that the Greeks were so concerned about, the reason for it all, the harmony, the purpose behind it, what is, the, what is behind this? What is the reason, the logos, the logic of, of the universe? And John came and he said the reason behind it all, the unity behind it all, the harmony behind it all, the, the logos is, is Jesus. In the beginning was the logos, was Jesus and the word was with God and the word was God. It's John's bold claim, the claim of Christianity. And John says that in the beginning then was this logos with God and actually being God. So theology, theologos, theos logos, is the study of God. What is God like? And here, John says, we have the logos, the word, Jesus, and he has made known theos to us. He has made known God to us. That's what verse 18 says. The logos has made known to us the theos. The word has made known to us what God is really like. Now, when we study the Bible, when theologians study the Bible, they do something called exegesis. To exegete the Bible is to interpret it. To exegete something is to explain it. What does it mean? What is the Bible saying? That's what exegesis is. The Greek of this verse, verse 18, it reads as follows in, in word for word, kind of the Greek reading of the verse. God, no one has seen ever, yet the only begotten God, the one being in the bosom of the Father, he has made him known. He has exegeted him. He has interpreted him. He has shown what he is like. And the Greek is exegesis. If you want to know what God is like, I like to think of God as, if you want to know what God is like, Jesus is the exegesis. Jesus is the explanation. Jesus is the interpretation of what God is like. The Logos is pointing to Theos and saying, this is what God is like. This is who God is. Now, I have a degree in modern foreign languages, in German and French. I've spent many years translating and interpreting from one language to another language, taking something, a text, and saying, this is what it means, and putting it into another language. Asking the question of the original, whether it's a German text or a French text, what does it mean? How can I interpret it? How can I exegete it? I was walking along with my dog uh, along the Barbican the other week, and I walked past a lady who was on her phone, and I heard her say two words into the phone. She said, Reet Bay. Reet Bay. So as I continued walking along, having heard this lady say, Reet Bay, into her phone, I began to use my interpretive skills to ask myself, what is she saying? What language is this? Was she talking about a coastal area in Devon or Cornwall or Reet Bay? I think not. And after some puzzling and scratching of my head, I realized that I was dealing here with the foreign language known as Jana. 
and that the lady was in fact saying into her phone, all right, boy. <laughs> or to paraphrase, how are you, old chap? <laughs> Reap bay? Reap bay? I was trying to interpret what she was saying. It's important. When we want to see God and to know God and to understand him and ultimately to be in relationship with him, that we interpret him correctly, that we have good exegesis, that we have good theology. And that happens by looking at Jesus. God no one has ever seen. Yet the only begotten God, the one being in the bosom of the Father, he has made him known. He has exegeted him. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. And if you want theology, let Jesus be the ultimate logos that explains the theos to you. This is how the writer of Hebrews puts it at the starting of that book, at the start of that book. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. Now listen to this. The son is the radiance of God's glory. He's the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. In Colossians 2 verse 9, 10, in the message version, it says, everything of God gets expressed in him, in Jesus. So you can see and hear him clearly. You don't need a telescope, a microscope, or a horoscope to realize the fullness of Christ and the emptiness of the universe without him. So one day as Jesus' time on earth is reaching its end, he's talking to his disciples. He's telling them that he's going to leave them and he's going to go to his father's house and prepare a place for them. And this conversation is recorded in, later in the Gospel of John, in John 14. And Jesus says, I, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. And one of the disciples, Philip, can't get his head around what Jesus is saying. And he says, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. And Jesus says, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The Son, Hebrews, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. John 1.18, which we're starting on today, which is the end of our passage, no one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship in the bosom of, it says in the Greek, with the Father has made him known. What has Jesus made known to us about God? What characteristics of God has he revealed? The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. It's the same God. It's God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. In this passage, we're shown 
I think, two attributes of God that come through loud and clear, and that is the glory of God and the grace of God. Comes through in our passage, the word became flesh. The logos, the meaning of the universe, is not a a concept or a construct or a philosophical explanation. It's a person. And that logos became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen, John says, we've seen his glory. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. What does glory mean? Glory is high renown or honor. But glory is also magnificence or great beauty. We have seen his renown. We have seen his honor. We have seen his magnificence. We have seen his astounding and great beauty, says John. To be glorious is to have striking beauty or splendor. He is glorious. We've seen this glory, the glory of God. In his book, Simply Christian, N.T. Wright says that there are echoes of God's voice. What is God really like? And he says in every human being, there are echoes of God's voice. Things that remind us of God, that strike a yearning in every human heart, whether they realize it or not. He says those echoes of God, the echoes of his voice in the universe in which we live, that is found in every human heart. The first one is hunger for justice. In what um, N.T. Wright describes as the dream of the world put to rights. I've been watching, as a number of you have, um, Mr. Bates versus the post office. Uh, this fight of the sub-postmasters who were falsely accused of false accounting. Some of them were sent to prison falsely. Some of them were falsely accused, um, and, and it's all come out over 20 years. But as you watch that program through your fingers, it's so uncomfortable because of the injustice, the deep injustice that people experience, the false accusations, the false imprisonment of good people that did nothing wrong, And there is in every human heart the cry and the hunger for justice, the world put to rights. The second echo of a voice that N.T. Wright talks about in his book, um, Simply Christian, is spirituality. It's despite the promises and the attacks of secularism over recent years and atheistic philosophies to stamp out any notion of a reality beyond this natural world in which we live. There is a thirst in every human heart for some sense of meaning in life that transcends the biological observations. And that thirst remains strong in every single culture around the world. A sense of spirituality, a sense of what Alan and Amanda were arguing, there must be something more than this. There must be something to explain this beautiful sunset that we're looking at. Even people who reject the Bible's witness about the source of our origin and our biblical and broken, our broken relationship with God to turn to pseudo forms of spirituality to explain this echo in their hearts and lives. The third echo is a desire for relationship that is in every human heart because we were made for relationship with God and we were made with, for relationship with each other. And the last echo that N.T. Wright 
writes about in his book is beauty. Is a sense and a desire for beauty. Not only do we sense that the world is unjust, we also sense that it is somehow out of order. There is much to creation that speaks about order and beauty, but like the great prophet Isaiah, we long to see the earth filled with the glory of the Lord. And for pain and agony and despair to vanish instinctively, we know that the beauty we see is not complete. So when we see a beautiful painting or a beautiful sunset or we hear a beautiful piece of music or we appreciate the beauty of something, it is a longing in us for ultimately for what is the glory of God, the splendor and the beauty of God. To glorify him, that is what the Westminster Shorter Catechism says. The, the first part of that is that the chief end of man, the purpose of our life is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And so this echo of a voice that's in our hearts, this desire for beauty, this thing that resonates with us when we see beauty, it's somehow incomplete because there is something more beautiful, something more glorious than all of what we see. And now, Paul says, we only see it in part. We see it as if we're looking through a glass darkly, but then we will see it in all of its glory, in all of its splendor. And then we will see him face to face. Yeah. We'll see the glory of God as it really is, the presence of God, the beauty of God, the splendor of God. Yeah. Our love of splendor and beauty is ultimately our love and desire for the glory of God. It's ultimately our desire for his presence. We want to be in his presence. We want, like the psalmist, to behold his, his beauty. One thing I ask from the Lord, the psalmist says in Psalm 27, this is all I seek, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. This is what I ultimately want, the psalmist says. I want to see the beauty and the glory of God. You and I were made to enjoy and spend time in the presence and the glory of God, to gaze on his beauty. But we have a problem, Houston, because we are sinners and we are unholy and he is holy. And we are sinners and with sin and he is without sin and the two do not go together and we cannot look upon him and live in Exodus chapter 33, Moses, who had a very close relationship with God, made the request to God, show me your glory. Show me your glory, God. And God said, I'll cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face for no one may see me and live. In this interaction with God, Moses wants to see the fullness of his glory, but he can't. So he only sees the backside of the glory of God. He only sees an echo of it, part of it, as it passes by him and God holds him and hides him in the face of the rock. But in that moment, God shows his glory and his grace, but neither can be seen or fully experienced. 
John 1, verse 16, in the passage we've, we've read, out of the, his fullness, we've all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. Grace upon grace, the Bible says. We've been given grace upon grace. Grace in the place of grace that's already been given. What does, what does that mean? And John says, the law, the law was given through Moses, but now grace and truth have come through Jesus Christ. Moses wanted to see God's glory, and God responded by revealing his grace and his goodness and a touch of his glory. And then God gives Moses the law. He gives him the law, the Ten Commandments, in verse 6 of Exodus 34, and he passed in front of Moses proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. The giving of the law, the outlining of, by God of how we should live in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not, the restrictions and, and the boundaries we often think of law as opposing grace. We've got law and we've got grace. But what John is saying here is that the giving of the law was grace. We have received grace upon grace. The law came through Moses. That was grace. But now truth and grace and justice comes through Jesus Christ in all of its fullness. God is always acting in grace and truth. The Old Testament variation of that is often described as the loving kindness of God or the faithfulness of God. The same kind of pairing of grace and truth, loving kindness and faithfulness, the hesed of God called loving kindness or steadfast love. Is a parent acting in love any less when they say to their child, do not touch, thou shalt not <laughs> Am I being less of a loving parent? Am I showing less grace to my child when I say, do not touch? Do not do that. When I put boundaries in place as a parent around my children, that is, as all parents know, loving parents know, that is an act of love. It is an act of grace. The most loving parents set boundaries, give restrictions, set constraints as an act of love. The parent is loving their child no less when they are disciplining their child or constraining their child than when they are cuddling the child and reading him or her bedtime stories. The law, John says, as it was given to us, the Ten Commandments summation graciously spells out for us as humanity and the people of God the clear will of God for our daily living. It is an act of grace. Grace upon grace. And then came Jesus, John says, full of grace and truth. Grace upon grace. Blessing upon blessing. The grace of the law as given to Moses, followed by the glory and the grace of Jesus Christ, who would fulfill every aspect of the law for us, 
and what we could not do ourselves, he would do for us. Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them. I've come to fulfill them. And this was the grace of God who knew that we could not fulfill them. We could not fulfill the law. As the law came, the trespass increased. It pointed us to us what we were doing wrong. If you don't know the law, sometimes you don't know what you're doing wrong. But the sign says, do not go above 70 miles an hour. And when you do, the law comes and says, you have trespassed. The law is given, trespass increases. We understand where we fall short. But as sin abounds, grace abounds even more. There's always more grace. In that series, Mr. Bates versus the Post Office, in this fight of the sub-post uh, masters against the corporations, against the government, against the law of the land, they meet together, all of these wronged people, they meet in a village hall, and they fight for their case, and they fight for their justice, and they say, what do we really want? What do we want? And somebody shouts out, we want compensation. We want our money back. And Mr. Bates says, yes, we do. We want our money back. We want our ruined livelihoods back. Everything we've lost, we want it back. That's true, but we want more than that. What else do we want? We want justice. Yes, he says, we want justice, but we want more than that. What do we want? He says, what we truly want, what we really want is we want truth. We want the truth. The word became flesh. He made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. These echoes of a voice. We want justice. We have a sense of spirituality. We want relationship. We want beauty and glory. They're all satisfied in Jesus Christ, who is, he said of himself, the way, the truth, and the life. Grace was given by a gracious and compassionate God giving the law through Moses, but more grace, grace upon grace, blessing upon blessing, was given through the coming of Jesus Christ. It is through his grace that we see his glory. Moses points to grace. Jesus performs and personifies grace. Moses glimpses the back of God's glory. Jesus embodies the fullness of that glory. And John says, we have seen, we have seen his glory. He has made known to us what God is like. So Jesus says of himself, I am the way and I am the truth and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. And this grace has transformative power. It changes people's lives as revealed through Jesus Christ. So John Newton, 
a slave trader, a bad man through and through in many ways, lived a profligate life, came to know God and the grace of Jesus Christ and penned the old hymn, Amazing Grace, that saved a wretch like me. I once was blind, I once was lost, but now I'm find, found, was blind, but now I see. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. I think of that song from Hillsong that we used to sing, Your Eye is on the Sparrow. You call me to your purpose, as angels understand. For your glory, may you draw all men, as your love and grace demands. And I, I will run to you, to your words of truth, not by might or by power, but by the Spirit of God. I will run the race till I see your face. Let me live in the glory of your grace. Let me live in the glory of your grace. What is God really like? I like to think of God as. Jesus came, he exegeted and interpreted the Father for us. He is the full radiance of God's glory. John says we've seen the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And we've seen the ultimate grace of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And each one of us, that longing that is in every human heart for spirituality, relationship, justice, beauty or glory is fulfilled in Jesus Christ and in a relationship with him. He is everything we need for life and godliness. He is the way, he is the truth, he is the life. And if you look at Jesus, you will see God. So let's pray and turn our hearts towards him in response. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form, that you came down fully man and yet fully God, this mystery, and yet you revealed to us the glory and the grace of a loving heavenly father. We thank you for the constraints and the restrictions and the boundaries that you put around us because of your grace and your love. But we thank you on top of that grace on top of that law that we could never fulfill, Jesus came and fulfilled it for us. And we have received his truth, his grace, his mercy, and his justice. So Lord, I pray, if there is anyone here today that does not know God, that does not know Jesus as their personal Lord, their Savior, I pray that they would open their heart and their mind to him today and receive him and believe in him and receive the right to be called a child of God. We thank you for your undeserving favor, your undeserved favor. We thank you for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the love of God. We thank you for the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. 
We thank you that you did not leave us in our sin, but you rescued us. You paid the price for us. We thank you for your grace and your glory. And I pray, Lord, for anyone who is trying to meet those needs in every human heart by some other means, that they would turn to the one who fulfills them all. The need for justice, the need for spirituality, the need for relationship, and the desire for beauty. Fill our hearts with these things, and may we glorify God forever. In Jesus' name, amen.